You're listening to My Cryptid Vacation, Episode 2. Down the I-5, we head to the Californian border. The scenery changes slowly, then all at once, transforming from flowered prairies and verdant forests to rugged coastline and towering mountains spotted with impossibly tall trees. Packed into a tiny blue car, we're snaking our way towards the trees of mystery in Klamath, California, for a very unique and breathtakingly beautiful stop on my cryptid vacation. The trip down from Oregon to California is no joke. After declaring no illicit produce at the California state line, although I guess I might have had an apple in my backpack, but don't tell anyone, we passed by some odd environs. You can check out the Instagram, my underscore cryptid underscore vacation, for the pictures, but some real oddities surfaced. You can find a ton of small businesses boasting Bigfoot-inspired names, from auto repair stores to print shops, and, as freaked me out to no end, a huge almost realistic statue of a fly atop an outdoor restroom in O'Brien, Oregon. From wildlife preserves and flower-soaked wetlands to dive bars and dangerous mountain curves, as a native Midwesterner, the Redwood Highway felt much more exotic than I thought it would. After pulling onto the 101 and driving about half an hour, we've passed under the towering redwood canopies of Northern California, and seen our fair share of natural scenery. Rock formations embedded in the water of the California coast, floral lagoons and dense forests, everything and more seemed to pass by in the rearview mirror. It was just becoming dusk when we arrived in Klamath, elevation 30 feet, and found ourselves at the Trees of Mystery. Well, arriving in Klamath is a bit of a misnomer, Although it's not the smallest town I visited on the trip, that honor goes to Littleton, North Carolina, population 500 and some change, Klamath is rural and decentralized. In fact, Klamath isn't a town at all, but rather an unincorporated census-designated place, or CDP. The original town center, I only found out later, had been destroyed by flooding in 1964. Well, the flood of 1964, which leaked over a week into 1965, so... Okay, I'm, I'm bearing the lead. Point is, there isn't much Klamath to see. It's also strange to me that a town could be wiped off the map, and as recently as 1964, and as close to home as California. But I guess that goes to show how much I know about anything. The Trees of Mystery is located near the center of both Redwood National Park and Redwood State Park. In case you can tell, Californians kind of like their redwoods. As you approach, there are two distinct sides to the attraction, the Trees Motel and the Bonafide Trees of Mystery. It's easy enough to tell them apart. The motel is, well, a motel, and the trees themselves have colossal statues of Paul Bunyan and his blue ox Babe 
standing guard out front. The forest presses in from all directions, muffling sounds and limiting sightlines on the road that cuts between the motel and the trees proper. We arrived in time to check in for the night, and we were treated to a cozy, rustic room, with a quilt and furniture that wouldn't have looked out of place half a century ago. So after a day of driving, I've made my way to the Motel Trees, which is just across the road from the Trees of Mystery. Um, it is a Twin Peaks-esque motel room, very sparse furnishings, kind of charming in like a woodsy cabin-y way. Um, and of course, the internet is down. Allegedly, the only place to connect to the internet is at the pole near the sign that says Motel Trees, which is, like, outside of every door. Um, but, yeah, so that's the state of affairs. And this deep in the woods, there's no, there's no data either. There's a kind of, I don't know, heavy silence in the woods. Also worth noting is that the hotel phone does not appear to work or maybe we just don't know how to operate a hotel phone. Further on the tr motel trees, uh, a lampshade has just fallen in a rather entertaining spectacle. Which is weird, because the furnishings are nice. It's like, you know, it's, it's well furnished. But it's just falling apart, in my opinion, just enough. The Trees of Mystery is an interpretive trail something the National Park Service describes as a trail that tells a story. This particular trail tells two stories, as far as I can tell. The first is one of conservation and appreciation, highlighting unique redwoods in an attempt to display their underappreciated importance, and ultimately, as strange as it sounds, shared uniqueness. The second story crystallizes in a section of the path referred to as the Trail of Tall Tales, which we'll get to in a second. The storytelling there is more explicit, and the use of human artifacts as opposed to occasional signage tells a more cohesive, easier-to-digest story than the artistic framing and subtle highlighting of standing trees. A short, perhaps looping informational video plays at the start of the trail. It was audible yesterday, too when I was walking around, even when this place was closed. The exhibit of the Trees of Mystery isn't really a museum in the conventional sense. It's pretty much a guided walk through a series of trails that go from tree to tree. You're kind of free to pick your own path. At the start of the trail is something that struck me as a meditation garden. There's a water wheel, a small pond, and a few statues, including one of St. Francis of Assisi, whose patronage, for the record, includes things like friendship toward animals and concern for the environment. We need to look back into the past for centuries, even to the time before Christ, when this fallen redwood was a little seedling. Then it grew for centuries. Then it fell. How long it was on the ground before these huge trees grew over it, nobody knows. 
But we do know it has been on the ground long enough for trees over 10 feet in diameter to grow over it. And as you noticed, two of these trees growing over the fallen giant attained such towering height and age that finally they had to be felled. We consulted a small paper map to figure out where to go. And as we snaked through the trails, we ran into all sorts of people, hikers, runners, a lot of outdoorsy types, and a lot of people who seemed like they were just here to appreciate the nature. There is a collection of curious trees on display, some damaged from storms or lightning, others twisted in odd patterns. See the tree shaped like a lightning bolt, appropriately called the lightning tree. The lightning tree has been struck by lightning, while the nine cathedral trees are arranged in a semicircle, making a makeshift pulpit. A speaker buried between them plays some tinny devotional music. It would appear that we've finally reached the fabled cathedral trees. Looks like seven? Eight trees all stacked around in a semicircle. Bit of a pulpit situation and benches. There's a poem etched on a redwood slab written in the middle. And it's dedicated to the builder of the Golden Gate Bridge, Joseph B. Strauss. Perhaps a distorted reflection of the cathedral trees, the baby cathedral tree stands a short walk away. We are taking reservations for weddings when this display is ready, the sign reads, 600 years from now. A trail map names over a dozen trees of interest, grown in special patterns, twisted by the light conditions of the forest, or naturally damaged. One mystery I couldn't sort out while I was here was how many of the tree structures were actually unique. Like, if I just picked a random patch of redwoods, would there be as much apparent diversity as there is here? My eye gets lost on the way in, passing thousands of trees, and I realized that I didn't really see many of them. I just felt like I did. The Trees of Mystery provides intention, the space to explore just a few redwoods while hyping them up. A few of the trees might have been altered or reformed. The mini-cathedral stands as a good example of that, or maybe even the candelabra trees. But I really think they could be any trees at all. The redwood burl you saw growing on the side of the tree is a large commercial size, which grows only one in 25,000 trees and are much in demand by wood craftsmen for their beautiful and unique grain. There is an interesting Indian legend concerning these trees of mystery. In the not-too-distant past, Indians of this area refused to step foot among these trees, saying that this is a place of spirits, which made the trees grow as they do. An additional sign informs us that the burl tree snapped at the burl at night during a windstorm on January 16th, 2016. Nobody heard it fall. Confirming, I think, one of philosophy's most pressing questions. We had the misfortune, well, maybe the good fortune, who's to say, to arrive at the trees at the same time as a visiting bus 
of school children. Their energy will be palpable in a few sections of our recording, and despite my best efforts to navigate around them, we run into them a few times in a few different locations around the trail. A lot of the traffic here is older people, couples and families just getting lost in the beauty of wandering around and taking pictures. But there's no shortage of people on a mission here, with backpacks, hiking poles, and a determined need for speed. There's incline enough for a hills workout, and it wasn't crowded enough to deal with people bobbing in and out of the trails. Except for the busload of tweens, the entire place was almost eerily serene. There's a pretty hellish reminder with the towering inferno, which is a, a tree that looks like it's been burned from the inside out. A sign mentions that after being struck by lightning, the entire inside of the tree was on fire and acting like a chimney. By morning, the center of the tree had burned all the way down to the rock and dirt it stands on, leaving just the cold, empty spires that are present today. Threaded like an immense spider web between the tops of many of the trees is the Redwood Canopy Trail, an elevated walkway made of rocking rope bridges and slightly more stable wooden platforms drilled into the bodies of these titanic redwoods. There are rails and coverings, ensuring that falling off would take some effort, but my palms still got a bit sweaty when I took pictures with my caseless phone. We're high above in the trees now, and you can kind of, I don't know if you can hear this swaying. The bridge moves, sways slightly when you're on it. Very adventurous experience. Deeper into the attraction is the Sky Bridge, a sky-lift gondola that deposits you at a scenic outlook high up in the redwoods. One of the lift operators clarified that the reason that there's a little doll of a witch attached to the rotary mechanism of this lift complex is because she's the one powering the lift by casting spells. I don't have much to say about it except that it's well worth the stop. Watching the trees slide by with morning fog over them isn't something I get a lot as a Midwesterner, but even my Californian colleague was impressed with the view. One more Bigfoot reference popped up as we boarded the gondola. Those foot markings telling you where to stand as the lift picks you up were several sizes too big, and strangely ape-like. website of the Trees of Mystery mentions that it has been our great pleasure to awe, entertain, and edify the traveling public for the past 75 years. Edify really is the word to use here, because the Trees of Mystery does seem like it has something to say. It casually invokes religious imagery, especially references to Christianity, and wants to convey a moral teaching, along with its awing and entertainment. There are statues of saints, posts about reverence for nature. Another Christianity reference. We've got the Trinity tree to accompany the statue of the saint 
farther down. The effect is difficult to describe, even with the benefit of hindsight. The best way I can describe it is, the messaging is akin to those 1950s PSAs about bullying, drugs, and fitting in. There's one right way to be, and there's one right way to get there. The signs don't have dates on them, per se, but I'd be surprised if they're from much later than when this place first opened its doors, in 1946. Paul Bunyan and Babe are one of the more curious parts of the attraction, and their meaning is the saving grace of any attempt to write this stop off as more than a mere miscalculation. The statue of Paul Bunyan, standing 49 feet tall, and Babe coming in at 35 feet, are in fact in their third iteration. The pals were added in anticipation of the Century 21 Exposition, aka the Seattle World's Fair of 1962. Just beyond, you will enter the Trail of Tall Tales. Here, in the world's largest milled pieces of lumber, are carved the stories of Paul Bunyan and his crew, by Kenyon Kaiser, who, for the most part, used a chainsaw, the tool usually used by the logger. In telling the tales of Paul and his men, we share with you a bit of the lore and beauty of this particular little part of our Earth and a little of the history of an industry that helped build our country to the great nation it is today. This brings us to the second main part of the attraction, the Trail of Tall Tales, where the extended cast of many of the Paul Bunyan myths are on display. This section takes us by large wooden reliefs, carved, mostly, by chainsaw. Well, hello, and welcome to the Trail of Tall Tales. I am, of course, Johnny Inkslinger, the camp recorder. Paul hired me way back to record and tell the stories of his and Babe's adventures. You know, whenever you find forest, you will eventually find loggers to help the wheels of progress remain in motion. I don't really know what to say about the implications of the phrase, wheels of progress, but that's neither here nor there. Years ago, when the harvest of trees was done mostly by savvy and muscle instead of machinery, there lived the greatest logger of all time. Paul Bunyan was his name, and so great was his fame that no tale about him was ever doubted. It was usually around the bunkhouse stove on cold wintery nights that the telling and retelling of the many great deeds of the unusual man made Paul Bunyan an important part of American folklore. The stories of Paul Bunyan and his lumberjack cronies like Red Thumber Robbie, Sourdough Sam, and Sawdust McPherson come alive here along the trail of tall tales. Visitors can follow the trail and refresh themselves on the origin story of America's most famous logger, or at least one origin story, as presented in the reliefs. A narration is provided, bringing light to a bit of the context surrounding the birth of the mythos, presented as though it's one of the minor characters in the story explaining the tall tales. Paul Bunyan and Babe aren't technically cryptids, and even the kinds of creatures that populate their stories, like the camp pet Digger, who dug the Grand Canyon on a whim, or the mosquito with a sucker on each end, aren't cryptids either. They bear a much greater resemblance to other logging stories, like the Hodag, which we'll visit in episode 5. There isn't evidence in favor of their existence, because their existence is not the important part of their story. Intentionally fantastical, these tales blur the line between common-sense moralizing and good old-fashioned fun, 
pulling the legs of newcomers to the logging camp, and serving as a veiled commentary about the goings-on at the camp more generally. While Bunyan and Babe aren't cryptids, Bigfoot, preserved in all their glory in a cast metal statue in a peaceful park near the entrance to the Trees of Mystery, certainly is. I don't want to say that the statue is frightening, per se, but it does feel out of place given the general naturalism and unironic religiosity of the trees. This particular model of statue, as I'd come to find out through my travels, isn't particularly unique, and several attractions, mostly of the cryptozoological variety, boast nearly identical statues of their own. Bigfoot, as the quintessential American cryptid, takes up quite a lot of airtime as we reach actual cryptid museum locations, so I won't dwell too much on it here. But Bigfoot is so many things, a signifying symbol of community, an expression of pioneer ideology, and a pre-internet meme turned lifestyle brand and pop culture figure. By the end of the trip, I was whipping out my phone at anything that even resembled a hairy biped, probably offending some strangers in the process. Seeing Bigfoot at the trees was a bit of a shock, but very appreciated. I can't in good faith talk about the trees of mystery without mentioning the end of the trail private collection. Off to the side of the generous gift shop, are a few rooms chocked full of indigenous artifacts, mostly collected by Marilee Thompson Smith, born in 1921, passed away in 2015. She was involved, an obituary in the Arizona Republic has her as a part owner, of the original park that preceded the modern trees of mystery, Wonderland Park, founded 1946. Smith was an enthusiast of Native American basketry, and opened a small museum in the gift shop circa 1966, finally upgrading into the current five-room gallery in 1982, where it got its name, End of the Trail. I'm not an indigenous historian. I mean, I'm not a historian of any kind, feel like that bears worth repeating. But the exhibit seems somewhat more kitschy than it needs to be, at least in its current form. It presents a hodgepodge of materials from all different tribes, and the layout of the exhibit places much more emphasis on combining all sorts of artifacts rather than going in depth or focusing on any one area or time period. There's serene pipe music playing over the speakers, and small flutes for sale in a basket in the corner. The actual items, though, are impressive and eclectic, spanning clothing, masks, and weapons with a particularly large collection of woven baskets, of course. The night before we stopped at the trees, we drove just a few minutes down the road to Yurok territory. The Yurok, numbered around 6,400 enrolled members, are located in what's now Del Norte and Humboldt counties. They speak a macro-Algonquin language, and are notable for being one of the very few tribes to have never fully ceded their land to the United States. We stopped by a bar, got some smoked fish, and saw a bit of the territory on our way out of town. I can't help but wonder whether or not there was Yurok involvement in the curation of the exhibit, as the end of the trail seemed to have only one display case with special focus on the history of the people nearby. Perhaps I'm misremembering the contents of the exhibit, and there really is more on display from the local Yurok, but I really hope there was some local consultation done. 
or at the very least, offered. That said, there was one particular image that seemed to pop up quite a few places. On signs at the trees themselves, on the night bell sign at the motel, the image, a silhouette of a slumped figure holding a stick on horseback, is an iconic one, although I didn't know that at the time. End of the Trail is a sculpture of an unidentified Native American man on a horse by James Frazier, an American sculptor of many of the famous statues in Washington, D.C., such as the Benjamin Franklin National Memorial statue, and an Alexander Hamilton outside the Treasury Building, both in Washington, D.C. The subject of End of the Trail is in despair, having been pushed from his lands and having reached the Pacific Ocean. Somewhat confusingly, the sculpture, dedicated in 1929, is currently on display in Oklahoma, but we'll let them have it for now. Is this a mark of solidarity with indigenous people? A deployment of iconic imagery? Both? Neither? Lacking the context for the symbol, I didn't ask when I had the chance. At least I got a bit of context for the attraction. Before leaving the Trees of Mystery, I had the pleasure of speaking with the current manager, Jennifer Gunther, a woman in blue jeans and turquoise jewelry. She agreed to answer a few of my most pressing questions after I'd explored the facility a bit, though she wasn't comfortable being recorded, so my recollections are based off an audio summary of our conversation a few minutes after we spoke, as well as handwritten notes when I took the interview. Her family, hailing from San Francisco originally, has owned the park since its inception in 1946, under the aforementioned name Wonderland Park, purchasing the original and expanding it, including adding the voice recordings that visitors can interact with around the park. Her grandfather built the second iteration of the Paul Bunyan statue that stands outside the trees, and assembled Babe from a kit. Where he got that kit, she did not say, probably to dissuade me from purchasing a similar one which, if anyone listening has any idea where I would get a build-a-30-foot-blue-ox kit, please write or otherwise let me know. Both current versions of Bunyan and Babe are fiberglass replacements of these older versions. When I asked about the kinds of marketing that keeps her attraction afloat, she indicated that many of her customers are repeat, or generational, people that visited once upon a time and are now returning and bringing people back for a whole new era. Most of the marketing the trees does is traditional, like road signs and local signage, a bit of which I caught on the way down. But she also said that the attraction was an early adopter of the internet, building a working website before that kind of thing was commonplace. Given that most of the attraction is outdoors, pandemic protocols weren't too big of an issue for the trees, and Gunther did note that there was a surge in traffic as other tourist locations closed down when pandemic protocols went into place. Although the location wasn't waylaid by the pandemic, I found the small sign near the gift shop checkout, due to COVID-19, no returns, to be rather in place. Gunther did mention that a pervasive issue is filling positions. Much of the work is seasonal, and turnover tends to be pretty quick, leaving the trees, the trees motel, and the nearby cafe frequently in need of workers. I asked about some of the best things and most challenging things about running the trees of mystery. 
Gunther told me that the part she loved most about the job was the area itself. The natural beauty had drawn her in, and was a big part of the reason she works here. Despite the area, though, there were many challenges in this kind of work. Getting employees can be difficult, as aforementioned, and it was hard even before the pandemic due to a low pool of workers in Klamath itself. For all its charm, the California locale is also susceptible to environmental hazards. During the recent wildfires, evacuations of nearby towns forced closures, and led to a host of other issues for the trees of mystery. This felt uniquely disheartening to me, given the message of environmental protection and respect that the trees endorses. On a more man-made side, the location is also uniquely susceptible to road work and traffic jams limiting access. With one major road in and out, delays and renovations can bottleneck traffic and make a few-hour stop to the attraction less enticing. Finally, I ended the interview with my last question, one of immense personal interest. I asked Gunther whether she had ever had what she would consider a supernatural experience. She pondered it for just a moment, before giving me a straight answer. I don't think so. I didn't press further. This question will end each of my interviews for two reasons. One, I think it lends itself to a kind of closure, giving the interviewee an open platform to explain as much or as little as they'd like to about their response before never having to see me again. And two, I was deathly afraid of the question tainting responses to my more standard interview questions by making it seem like I was only interested in a narrow line of questioning or that I was trying to push the interview in a specific direction. Especially as more and more cryptid museums became part of the trip, I didn't want to ask the question that I'm fairly certain these workers get from quite a lot of people. Likely white guys in glasses, like me, that goes like, I mean, all of this is cool, but... Do you really believe? That's, at least in my estimation, a loaded question, and keeping it open-ended is useful for an interview standpoint, and honestly feels more fair and less judgmental than any alternative I could think of. goodbye to Paul and Babe as we headed south toward the first Bigfoot museum of the trip. The Trees of Mystery wasn't quite what I expected it to be. More Christian than cryptid, more theological than theatrical. But on a road trip, that's hardly a bad thing. And as the redwoods receded in the rearview mirror, I can't help but think that the Trees of Mystery has just minted a new generational visitor. This concludes the lecture at this group of trees, and we shall now continue on even deeper into the mysteries of Mother Nature. It was the first of the tellings of all of the fellings, the axis swings and the bite of the blade. Thirteen wings bind the forest kings as the doorway opens into the shade. It calmed down the swallows and we wore their wings 
Follow the path to all that it brings As we counted, oh we counted a thousand tree rings My Cryptid Vacation is a podcast recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clovis If you like what I do, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash clovisthefox The outro music is a cover of Tree Rings Written and recorded by Johnny Flynn and Robert McFarlane. My Cryptid Vacation is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. The lonely crow called in the dark wood barked on the yew buried floor in the sun of the lark and the memory of water, see unwalked and unsaid, untrodden, unbidden, unmade in our beds. See the bark never trodden and the axe never swung dreams that we've had since this battle was won a haunting ablaze seven cloaks never worn a thousand tree rings and we counted oh we counted a thousand tree rings and the time of dreaming has come in the dance of night calling for the light of a million moons a thousand tree rain